This morning we are closing out the book of Esther. We'll be looking at the last couple of chapters, beginning in verse eight, uh, verse 3 of chapter 8. <clears throat> if you're using one of the Bibles you got off the back table that we've given you, this is on page 414 and following. When we began the book of Esther, it opened with a, a scene of King Hasuerus in all of his greatness. If you can remember back you know, four weeks ago, we saw this epic six-month feast that Ahasuerus had put on. And the text made sure that we noted the opulence there, the, the stone and the beautiful decorations and curtains and all of the things that only the Persian emperor could put together. It was a great celebration. The only command was just for the members of the party to party as hard as they wanted to, to drink to their heart's content. Again, this great celebration of his greatness. But this great celebration of Persian greatness screeched to a halt because of one woman. The king summoned his beautiful queen Vashti to parade herself through the party for everyone to gawk at. And she refused. And he became enraged. And the celebration of greatness came to an end. This is what led to the first irreversible edict of the book of Esther. It wasn't Haman's murderous decree. The first thing that was issued was this order from the king deposing Queen Vashti. If you recall, that edict was issued out of fear that the women of the kingdom would learn of Vashti's example and they would rise up against their husbands and there would be trouble and sorrow in all the homes of Persia. So the The king and his brain trust thought that this stopgap edict would do the trick. It would keep the women of Persia in their place. It would protect the greatness of the Persian empire from uppity women. This is the greatness of Persia. A fearful king who has to rely on threats and intimidation to keep his subjects in line. A king who is happy for you to get drunk on his wine, but who will allow no one to approach and see his face. A king who issues these sweeping, supposedly irreversible edicts, and yet whom we later find is clearly ignorant of what the edicts actually say and who they target. This is a king who uses people instead of serves them. As we begin the book of Esther, we're meant then to notice that this is the empire in which God's people find themselves. Esther and Mordecai and the rest of the Jews, they're living in this empire where authority is used like this. This is part of what makes Esther so universally relevant. You know, the Persian Empire doesn't have a monopoly on this kind of egotistical, superficial, abusive view of greatness. It wasn't unique to them. To one degree or another, every generation of God's people find themselves living in such an evil age. This is the way the world pursues greatness. They pursue it for the sake of satisfying themselves, no matter who they hurt in the process. This is worldly greatness. Jesus himself drew attention to this. He was teaching his disciples, and he said this is one of the great dividing lines between the kingdom of God, the kingdom that he came to bring, and worldly kingdoms. 
He said this in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 and 26. He told the disciples, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. So the greatness of Persia that we see is, is very true to type. It was these great authorities who were using what they had to serve themselves, even if it trampling their people. And today, this is the temptation of every human being who gets a little bit of greatness or power to use it to serve ourselves. I mean, it seems, what good is it if you don't use it to serve yourself? It seems obvious that it should be used that way. But Christ calls his people to live in this world as servants of all. How is that possible? How will we ever get ahead or protect what we have if we don't play the world's game? How can this be the answer, servanthood, to the world's ambition? This morning, as we go through these chapters, we need to keep these questions in mind. Like I said last week, we're not going to have sermon points so much as we are going to walk through this story that the chap- these chapters tell and, and seek to apply it to us as we go. But as we consider greatness, we should think about one man who was especially pursuing greatness in Esther, and that was this man, Haman, who we killed off last week. When we meet Haman in chapter 3, we get a distilled 200-proof version of worldly greatness. Whatever goodness there was in Hasuerus' generosity when he threw this big party, all that stuff's been filtered out. Haman aggressively pursues great evil and great pride. Think about how Haman used everything at his disposal to pursue his evil vision of greatness. So he used religion to do this. He, he cast lots, or these things called pur, to determine the day that the gods would most favor for a successful attack on God's people. Then he used the relationship that he had with the king to secure the king's authority to annihilate the Jews. When the king gives him the key to the kingdom, that's what he does with them. He issues this edict to destroy the Jews. And let's remember what happens after Haman wrote the edict and sent it out, goes throughout all the provinces, including Susa, at the end of Esther chapter 3. Verse 15 says, The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, in the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. The accomplishment of this evil is a cause for celebration for Haman. Haman's greatness is evil greatness. Greatness put to use purely for his own benefit and and really his alone. This is not for the king's benefit. And while King Hasuerus and Haman sat down to drink, the capital city of Susa is thrown into confusion by this evil edict. That's the result of Haman's elevation to greatness. Death 
and mayhem. Last week we looked at this the dramatic reversal that led to Haman's downfall and Mordecai's elevation. Haman had been great but suffered this great fall and was hung on his own gallows, the gallows he built for Mordecai. But Mordecai rose from obscurity to greatness. His service to the king was remembered and he received the honors that Haman had planned for himself. And at the end of that episode, the king gave Mordecai the signet ring that Haman had once wielded. As we enter into the last act of the story of Esther, the question we're asking is, well, what will Mordecai and Esther do with their greatness? They've been both promoted to these high positions. What will they do? So let's pick up the story in chapter 8, beginning in verse 3. Again, this is on page 414 of the Bibles provided. Remember, as we read, that despite the elevation of Esther and Mordecai, Haman's evil edict for destruction of the Jews is still out there. It's an irreversible edict, sealed with the king's signet ring, still in force. And so the date for the Jews' destruction on the 13th day of the 12th month, that date is still on the calendar. That's where you pick up the story in chapter 8, verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. Let me just pause there briefly for you to note that Esther's still trapped in this arrangement where she has to go and plead her case and wait for the king's scepter to be able to make a statement to her own husband. Let's pick up in verse 5. And she said, If it please the king, and I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, who are all in the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? You can just pause and notice, what does Esther use her privileged position for? She uses it to seek to save life, to save the lives of her people, who are God's people. She's asking seemingly the impossible to have Haman's irreversible decree revoked. Let's pick up in verse 7. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The scribes were summoned at that time, and the third, in the third month, which is in the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and governors and the officials of the province from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, and to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script, in their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. And then he sent letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate in any armed force of any people or any province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus 
on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So again, let's pause and note, Haman's edict cannot simply be reversed. So a a countermeasure is needed, and, and that's what Mordecai writes. It's important to observe that Mordecai's authorization here is an edict authorizing self-defense. The Jews can defend themselves from any who would attack them. So his edict is not not an opportunity for a revenge campaign on any suspected enemies. It's authorization for the Jews to protect their own lives. Verse 13. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every, every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Now, as we read what comes next in verse 15, This is a pretty close parallel to what's happened in chapter 3. When Haman has written an edict, he sent out the edict hurriedly through the king's couriers, and it's sent out through all the provinces, including Susa, the citadel. So let's read what happens next, remembering that when when that happened in chapter 3, Haman and the king had a, a little private toast while Susa was thrown into confusion and while the Jews put on sackcloth and ashes and mourned. This is how chapter 8 concludes. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now, the first time we read of Mordecai clothed in royal robes, it was amid Haman's humiliation, right? It was that great reversal where Haman had dreamed this up for himself and then Mordecai got the honors. We don't have any record of why Mordecai now is clothed in royal robes, but it, it seems like he's, he's wearing them all the time. Like this is now how he goes around, right? He's, he's been elevated to this position, We don't know why this happens, but we can see that what Mordecai does once his edict goes out is the exact opposite of what Haman did, right? When Haman's edict had gone out, he went and enjoyed a a private toast with the king while the whole city was thrown into destruction or confusion. So Haman luxuriated in his own privileges, but Mordecai goes out among the people, and it's a cause for celebration among both Jews and Gentiles, right? It says the whole city of Susa rejoiced and the Jews made feasts wherever the king's edict reached. We see that things are looking so good for the Jews and people are so afraid of them that some are even converting or at least saying that they're Jews to try to avoid any kind of trouble. The author of Esther is clearly a big fan of the storytelling maxim, show, don't tell. Right? He, he tells us very little by way of explanation, but he shows us Mordecai and Esther elevated. And Mordecai and Esther elevated and using their elevated positions to serve God's people. 
That's what we're going to see is the, the postscript on Mordecai's life in chapter 10 is that he sought the welfare and the peace of God's people. And the result of Mordecai and Esther's service is joy for everyone. The missing information in the narrative, I think, is really important because it invites us to ask, why was Mordecai so elevated? Why is his edict so warmly welcomed? I mean, the text never says, well, because Mordecai and Esther humbled themselves before the Lord and served his people, the Lord exalted them. It doesn't say that, but it does show us Mordecai and Esther humbly serving, seeking the welfare of God's people and God exalting them. When we think about what's God's answer to a world where people are seeking their own ambition, where power is used to abuse and crush, we're starting to get a hint of the answer. God's humble servants seeking the welfare of God's people. This trajectory of elevation for Mordecai only continues in chapter 9. So as chapter 9 starts, we're finally there on that fateful day, the 12th month, the 13th day, the day when Haman's initial edict said, this is the day to go out and kill Jews. If you have an animosity against the Jews, it's open season on the 13th day of the 12th month. But now Mordecai's edict has been urgently rushed out nine months previous. It's out there too, authorizing the Jews of the empire to join forces with each other, to gather together and to defend themselves. The existence of these two edicts sets up a An epic conflict, doesn't it? There's God's kingdom, represented by Mordecai's life-protecting edict, an edict of self-defense, versus the world's kingdom, represented by Haman's brutal, murderous edict. Let's read the first five verses of chapter 9. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. All the officials of the provinces... And the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. Now, as modern people, we tend to fixate on the violence and think, well, is this really a good thing that the Jews did? Were they just acting in a bloodthirsty rage? We may even wonder if they've just fallen into the ways of of fighting fire with fire, you know, imitating the world's ways. There's a few things to note. If you read through the passage, you'll see it's, it's emphasized that the Jews didn't take plunder. And this has a special biblical relevance because often when God sent his people out and to do holy war, they were not to take any plunder but to sacrifice it all to God. And as a matter of fact, the reason that King Saul fell, King Saul, the distant relative of Mordecai, 
was because he failed in this. He kept some of the plunder back for himself. And so it seems that Mordecai and the Jews are very careful not to make King Saul's mistake. So there's, there's hints here that this was a, a righteous campaign of self-defense, just as Mordecai intended. But we're also meant to compare what, what uh, Mordecai and Haman did. You know, Haman would not have issued his decree if he didn't think it would work. Right? And we, we read in chapter 9 how the, the enemies of the Jews were gearing up to execute uh, the Jews. They were getting ready for this slaughter. This was a real threat that the Jews faced. And so when we see the, the intensity of violence the Jews had to deploy to defend themselves, I think we're meant to see the intensity of hatred that was there against them. So again, as you, if you read through all of chapter 9, you'd see that the intensity of hatred in Susa is so great that they need two days of self-defense and that all ten of Haman's sons are killed. The implication there being that Haman wasn't the only one in Susa who hated the Jews. There were many. The Jews were in danger of being completely annihilated and God showed them favor. And this is remarkable because the deliverance of the Jews is due at least in part to the great reputation that Mordecai had gained. Did you, did you notice that as we read that these officials and uh, satraps and governors throughout the land, all the royal agents, they helped the Jews because they feared Mordecai. Mordecai was so great in the king's house. Now again, compare Mordecai to Haman. When, Mordecai, when Haman was elevated, Mordecai failed to show him honor, right? And this is, this is the thing that makes the whole story go. Haman's so upset by this that he decides to kill all the Jews. I mean, look, look at how weak Haman's power is. He can kind of be brought down by one stubborn guy. But then look at Mordecai's power. He seems to be doing nothing. You know, he's written an edict, and yet everyone in the empire is afraid of him. Without really trying, he becomes so great that all the resources of Persia are enlisted to defend the Jews. You know, what, what explains this? How can we account for Mordecai being held in such high esteem? What can account for this great reversal? Isn't it clear that only the Lord could have done this. Only the Lord could have elevated Mordecai. Only the Lord could have enlisted all the resources of Persia to defend his people. When at one point, all the resources were aimed right at his people. And the Lord uses these unlikely leaders, Esther and Mordecai. Right? An orphan girl, a low-level civil servant who just seems to hang around the king's gate all day. It's clear from the early chapters they were not perfect. They were not perfectly righteous. They're, they're not from a priestly or royal family in the sense of being in David's line. But God is pleased to deliver. He's pleased to bring down this mighty enemy through the humble service of these two nobodies that he chose to elevate. It's probably worth a minute to speak about the fact that we are preaching this series while the nation of Israel, the modern nation, is at war. I want to warn us against making a straight-line application from Esther in the 5th century B.C. to today. I mean, we might reason, well, since God ensured here in the 5th century that the Jews would always win against the Persians, that now in the 21st century, the thing's going to happen again, you know, the 
Hamas is backed by the Persians even. Well, it's so, it's so similar, it seems. And you might find Christian teachers who are telling you, well, that's the correct interpretation, and at the end of this conflict, Jesus is coming back. You know, I, I heard a pastor say that a few days ago, that within five years, Jesus will be back because of what's happening in Israel. I think those kinds of statements are confused and wrong. And now, there are sound theological te- uh, theologically sound teachers who believe that there's uh, a future plan that, that the Lord has for ethnic Israel to save them by faith in Christ. But it's a mistake to say that the, the main point of Esther really has anything to do with the modern state of Israel. It's a mistake to draw that connection. So instead of seeing Esther through the lens of this current conflict, I want us to see it through the lens of Christ. Christ is the only one who can explain such a great reversal. Because this book points us to the way that God miraculously delivers his people through Jesus Christ. And I should say, we can have differences of opinion even in our church about how God relates to the Jews today. But we should interpret scripture carefully and always through the lens of Jesus. One of the most remarkable things about Jesus' deliverance is that when he comes to save, he did not come to save ethnic Israel alone. He was a Jew, and he comes to his own people first, but they reject him. If he wanted to come up with one word to describe the category of people that Jesus came for, it's hard to do better than the word enemies. Jesus came to die for his enemies. And Jesus helps us see clearly who God's enemies really are. One way to describe what happens in Esther is to say, well, God's enemies got swift, immediate justice. Over 75,000 killed. But then again, is that really true? Were all of God's enemies judged here in Esther? Where is justice for King Ahasuerus? His name and signet ring sealed the document that sealed the Jews' faith, right? The first one, Haman's murderous edict. He's still alive and taxing people at the end of Esther. What about all the idolatrous people around who, who didn't take up arms against the Jews, but who worshiped their false gods in their pagan temples? What about them? They weren't judged here. What about the Jews who were living in the Persian Empire who... Maybe some of them had the option to go back to Jerusalem, but didn't want to. They don't, I don't want any more of that. I want to just stay here and be, be prosperous here in Persia. What about those Jews who weren't believing in God? If we, if we take the record of the prophets seriously in the Old Testament, the accusation is that many of them professed God with their lips, but had hearts that were far from God, or had started worshiping the pagan idols of their neighbors. They weren't trusting God the way their father Abraham did. As we look at this, we see that many of God's enemies were spared here, weren't they? The Jews were delivered, but they were delivered in some ways despite their unbelief. Not because they were so righteous or faithful. They were delivered because God is a promise-keeping God, and he made promises to Abraham to bless all nations through his seed. But we look at how Jesus came for his enemies. He came telling all people 
Jews and Gentiles, that they were enemies of God and needed to repent and believe. Jesus was an equal opportunity offender. And in doing so, he makes it clear an enemy of God is anyone who does not receive salvation by faith in Jesus' name. And anyone, an enemy of God is anyone who rejects his servant, his son. Enemies of God are those who love their own way of doing things more than God's way of salvation. Enemies of God are those who would prefer to go on serving themselves instead of confessing their sin and their need of salvation. We might put the question of Esther like this then. What kind of enemy of God are you? Are you an enemy of God who's set on remaining one until the day you die? Are you committed to ruling your own life and seeking your own pleasure, even though it will mean the destruction of your soul in hell for all eternity? Or will you be an enemy who accepts the deliverance that Jesus Christ came to bring to God's enemies? Will you say, I deserved hell and death, but I trust Jesus on the cross to bear the penalty of my sin? Will you be an enemy of God who's saved by Christ's work? Christ came to save his enemies. So the question Esther puts to us was, will you receive salvation by faith? Or will you go on being an enemy of God? It carries a warning. The enemies of God will face judgment. Some sooner, but all for sure later. If you're saved by Christ's work, then the question naturally flows, well, what does it mean to live out of that saving work? What does it mean to live as one who's been delivered by God, especially in an evil world? Answering this question is really what church is all about. I mean, we, we present the gospel, we want to make disciples, but part of making disciples is teaching them all that Jesus has been commanded, right? So every week, week in and week out, we look to God's word and seek to ask, well, how should we live in light of God's grace? So there are many right answers to this question, and we never stop exploring God's word to learn how to live. But as the book of Esther closes, it provides a specific answer, a specific way that we are to live in an evil age. And the answer is that God's people remember God's deliverance. The last part of chapter 9 in Esther is all about how God's deliverance from Haman becomes a perpetual day of remembrance For God's people. So verses 18 and 9 tell us how the the Jews in Susa and the Jews in the provinces, once they had finished defending themselves, they they rested and feasted. So it says, as a day, they use this day as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which to send gifts of food to one another. It sounds a lot like our celebration of Christmas, doesn't it? A day of remembering. It's also interesting to note this is the last month of the Jewish calendar and this is the first month of the Jewish calendar is when they celebrated Passover. So the, the first month and the last month of their year was bookended after Purim by these two celebrations of God's deliverance. Let's pick up in verse 20 and see how this, this holiday turns into a permanent feast. So this is chapter 9, verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews, so these things being the holiday, 
sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned from them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So Mordecai sends this letter out, kind of encoding all that they've done. And now, in verse 23, it says, the Jews throughout the empire, they accepted this as a good idea. So the Jews accepted that, they, that what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush them and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, every province and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring, with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. So you know how every Thanksgiving you have some news article explaining the first Thanksgiving and what really happened. Well, in some ways, this book is in the Bible to explain to the Jews, Here, here's how you got Purim. Here's where this originated for you. This is what it means. But there's some interesting things about this commemoration is that it's, it's very unlike Passover, right? Passover, God told them to do it beforehand. They did it. And then he made sure that they knew they were supposed to celebrate it yearly. Right? It was very much beginning to end a divinely instituted thing. I think we can, we can see even in the development of purity, not, not that God was not part of it, but that this is very much something that the people in exile are having to kind of come up with. Right? They're, they're far from the land. The temple is in ruins. In some ways, their, their access to God, to God is formally cut off. But they still realize the need to remember his deliverance. Should we celebrate Purim then? You know, it's, it's in the Bible, and it's, it seems like a, a cool thing, you know, to remember this. What, if we, what should we do with this holiday? Is that the application? You know, let's start a new Purim festival every year in the month of Adar, whatever that is. One way to think about the answer to this question is to, to think about where the Jews are in their history, right? They are scattered. They are waiting for something. And, and we know that this generation of Jews would die, right? Even though they were saved, they, they weren't going to heaven right away, right? Uh, they, they would die, and, and another generation would follow, and, and a lot of those future generations, again, would, would descend into unbelief. By the time that Jesus comes, 
most of his countrymen are not following him. They're not ready to receive him. The Persian Empire would give way to the Greek, which give way to the Roman. And this deliverance did not change the hearts of anyone. The testimony, again, of the prophets is that even in exile, these people remain far from God. So we can say that they were right, Esther and Mordecai and the Jews, to make this holiday. It was a godly way to live, to remember what God had done. We can even go so far as to say that remembering God's deliverance is essential for people in exile. But we can also say that this deliverance of God in Esther leaves us waiting for a greater deliverance. It leaves us longing for Christ. And Christ's deliverance is God's ultimate deliverance. It's the one that God's people should remember. And remarkably, God has provided us a way to remember it, right? I mean, the Lord's Supper is that meal of memory. We do this in remembrance of Christ. We eat the bread and drink the cup, remembering how he gave his life to deliver us. How by dying on the cross, he effected this miraculous reversal for God's enemies. But God's work in remembering that should extend beyond the Lord's table. It should be a regular part of the way that we speak to each other in our our church. This is the, the culture that we want to see developed and that we pray for, is that we'll have deep conversations with each other that are theological in nature. We, we often pray that. And we pray that because, not because we just like theology, but because we want to be grounded in the goodness of God's grace. The word fellowship gets at this. You know, it's, it's not meant to be a word that just means socializing or eating together. It's a word that deliberately means we, we speak of our salvation that we share together in. We're partakers of this same Christ, this same salvation. And so when we think about discipling each other, or to put it another way, helping each other grow and following Jesus, remembering the gospel is a big part of how we do that. We don't merely gather and talk to offer good advice to each other. We don't disciple each other by just trying to convince everyone of our opinions of stuff. The main way, or one of the main ways we help each other is by saying, brother and sister, look to Jesus. Remember him. Remember what he's done for you. Trust him. Live out of the bounty that God supplies to you in Christ. Forgive others as one who's been forgiven much by God through Christ. Love others as one who's been loved much by God in Christ. To be God's people in an evil age is to be a remembering people. This is how we remain faithful by remembering God's miraculous deliverance, by remembering how everything was reversed for us. We were headed for death and hell, but Christ came and secured our life. What we are meant to remember is, is not so much a what, but a who. We remember Christ himself. We remember this earlier this morning as we began talking about worldly greatness and how can Christians live in a world where everyone else is pursuing their own ambition, where everyone else is pursuing their own path. And we referred to Jesus' words in Matthew 20, where he called his disciples to serve each other, to be a slave. That's what true greatness is, he said. But as he says that, he uses himself as the chief example. 
So he says, it shall not be among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Here is true greatness. The great king of all came to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. Our lives are enslaved to sin and death and hell, but Jesus ransoms us out of that by giving himself. We've already noted how Mordecai is a faint picture of this in chapter 10, verse 3, where it says he grew great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his people, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Mordecai's greatness is that he sought the welfare and the peace of his people, of God's people. Jesus is presented to us as a, a true and better Mordecai. He didn't muster an army and seek to take David's throne by force. He didn't call down fire on his enemies the way his disciples wanted him to. He allowed himself to be handed over to evil men. He let them lay their hands on him and beat him and nail him to the tree. Jesus came to serve, to suffer and die for his enemies. This is God's answer to an evil world, that he would come and die to pay for the sins we've committed. By his death, he delivers all who believe. He brings true, eternal peace, true, eternal welfare. Because of Christ, we sing, it is well with our souls. Christ is the deliverer. He is the one we remember. Let's pray. Our Father, we have many great things to remember. We thank you for this amazing book of Esther, a book of miraculous reversals. And Father, your name is not mentioned, but your fingerprints are all over the story. Father, we pray for faith in our own lives. When the world says you're not real, when our own hearts doubt your goodness, Father, give us faith to see that you are at work. You have loved us in Christ, your son. He died to set us free from sin and death. We pray for your grace to remember him and help us remember him together. In Jesus' name, amen.